0: Good morning, LifePoint. Great to uh, be with you this morning, and thank you for taking this time to uh, worship with us and to study God's Word with us. Allow me to pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the height and depth and width of your amazing grace toward us in Christ that covers all of our sin and satisfied the debt that we owed. We thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness to us, especially during these strange times of quarantine and isolation as we pass through what are for us uncharted waters. And so we claim your promise to us through the prophet Isaiah. Fear not, And with the psalmist, we would say this morning, as the deer longs for streams of water, so we long for you, O God. May we find in you sustenance for each day, strength for each challenge, and genuine hope for the future. And we long as well for the time when we'll be back together again face to face, enjoying one another's presence, praising and worshiping you together learning and growing together, and may that time, oh God, be soon. In the meantime, we pray that the current pandemic might be lifted from us soon. We pray for those among us who are grieving deep losses. We continue to pray, especially this morning, for the Biggs family and the Volkart family. We love them. We know that you love them infinitely more. And so we pray that in these days they will find in you the peace and comfort that is the exclusive experience and blessing of those who do grieve and yet do so with confident hope of reunion at the resurrection of the redeemed to everlasting life. This morning we ask that you, Father, will draw us close to yourself, that by your Spirit you will open the eyes and ears of our hearts and teach us that which you have appointed for us to learn. May your word come wonderfully alive to us in this hour. And may we not be forgetful hearers, but effective doers of your word. That we may grow in our faith, hope, and love. That Christ will be exalted in our lives, in our church and our community. And that you, Father, will be glorified through your church. Amen. Last week we began a series, Simple Virtues for Complex Times, rooted in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Allow me to read this for us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is No law. By way of brief review, we we noticed last week that the word fruit is in the singular and not the plural. Paul doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit as if there were many, but rather the fruit, meaning that there is but one fruit. Paul points to nine facets of that one fruit, or as we are speaking of them in our series, nine virtues. And last week, we looked at the first virtue, the one that Paul understood to be first in priority, the one that precedes and and indeed overarches the other eight, which is love. And we examined in 1 John 4, 7 to 12, where the apostle shows us the source of love, which is God, points us to the essence of love, which is the gospel, and directs us to the right response to God's love for us which is to love one another. This morning we're examining the second virtue, which of course is joy. Alistair Begg tells the story of having spoken at a national conference, and afterwards having someone hand him a note, which read, Dear Pastor Begg, a friend was suffering through brain cancer and its treatments. His relationship with Jesus was such that the nurse on duty wrote as a critical comment on his chart, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. Since then, I have made it one of my goals in life to be inappropriately joyful. You see, the nurse uh, could not understand how joy could possibly accompany such terrible suffering. A fairly understandable reaction, really. So we really do have to draw a contrast, don't we, between happiness and joy. The word happiness comes to the English language from the Norse root. The word haps, which means chance. Happiness, then, must be understood as being dependent on circumstances, on what happens. By contrast, joy does not. We Americans connect happiness in our thinking with health, success, possessions, prosperity. Happiness is regarded largely as a spontaneous response to temporary pleasure, the feeling that all is right with the world, that that we're okay. But joy is something quite different. Joy isn't determined by or dependent upon a sense of well-being. Joy may, in fact, be experienced when things are not well with us. In times of crisis, in times of illness, in times of grief, grief, when we're facing the uncertainty of life without the security of a job or a spouse or a home. If happiness depends on what happens, joy is distinguished from happiness inasmuch as it shapes our attitudes to our circumstances and to our surroundings. You know, there are so many passages in the Bible that speak of joy, but this morning I'd like to ground our thinking in the Apostle Peter's simple statement in First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's short. Let me read it again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Take notice with me of the progression of The apostles thought, number one, he says, you love him. You love the Lord. Number two, you don't see him. He's gone away. He's preparing a place for us. One day he'll come again, but right now we don't see him. Third, he says, you nevertheless believe in him. Our faith is in him. Our confidence is in him. And number four, then, he says, You rejoice with inexpressible joy, filled with glory. See, Peter wants us to understand joy, then, as the supernatural result of believing in Jesus, of coming to understand and embrace the gospel. Does this mean, then, that only Christians can understand the distinction between happiness and joy. Or for that matter, that only Christians can experience joy. Last week we, we observed that the ability to express agape love, the love of God, is the exclusive experience of the believer. Does the Bible say something similar about joy? We're speaking today on the basis of Galatians 5, 22 to 23, about joy as a virtue that is the result of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God as he takes up residence in someone's life. So here's what we can say. That those who do not have the Spirit of God living in them cannot experience the quality of life, and in this case, the the particular quality of joy, that the spirit produces in those who do. Still, it would be extreme, I think, to say that those who are not Christians are incapable of knowing a joy that is distinct from happiness. I once read an author, though, who referred to what he called a moral joy, moral joy, which he defined as the result of having one's values in deep harmony with their behavior, a sense of knowing that the the pattern of your life is marked by a consistent integrity that is then revealed in the things you do, in your conduct. And he defined that kind of joy as the, the quiet sense of gratitude and tranquility that it's the byproduct of a successful moral struggle, something you must give yourself to, something you must do. So let's contrast moral joy with the joy experienced by a Christ follower, which at its heart is the joy of our salvation. This joy, the the joy of the Spirit, is grounded in the recognition and the acknowledgement of of all that God has done for us in Christ to set us free from sin, from death, and from the devil. So, So think about it. It's possible, isn't it? To know moral joy, as the author defined it, without any sense of the love of God and the work of Christ on your behalf. As we look around the world today, we find brokenness, illness, alienation, conflict, cynicism, hopelessness, fear, fear desperation. Where then is joy to be found? Christians able to say that there is only one ultimate cure for the ills of mankind, that, that even when my conscience accuses me, there is only one thing that I know that can give peace and rest and joy to know that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the, the Son of God, has forgiven me, that because he loved me and died for me, I am free of accusation. When my conscience accuses me, when I'm acutely aware of my weakness and my failure, when I'm reminded over and over again of my lack of power to live as God intends me to live, I am driven again, And again and again, back to the solid rock of my salvation. And that is the distinguishing feature of the joy that the Spirit produces in us. See, joy as the fruit of the Spirit isn't manufactured by us. On the contrary, it's produced in us. Think of it this way. At Christmas, many of us purchase a cut Christmas tree. And at the moment that tree was cut down, it was removed from its life source. It was, at that moment, functionally dead. Many of us put up artificial trees that also have no life in them. We decorate Christmas trees by adding ornaments to them. Neither the cut tree nor the artificial tree produce their own ornaments. We need to add them. Human beings are sinful by nature. We're living in a world that's held in the grip of sin and death and the devil, and yet we possess an extraordinary joy as Christians that the world cannot explain. Each of us needs a power outside of ourselves that invades us and transforms us and makes us what by nature we are not, what by ourselves we can never become. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives as we trust in Christ. He transforms us inwardly and enables us to to face all the storms of life. See, contrary to popular opinion, Christian joy isn't a goofy grin or a put-on-air of religiosity, a a praise-the-Lord-whatever-happens, kind of attitude, but that can be easily erased by what actually happens, a bad blood test result, or a broken relationship, or financial loss, or a platter of Brussels sprouts. Christian joy faces the challenges of life with confidence and with hopefulness. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician and philosopher, once wrote that being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think of such things. Rather than dealing honestly and forthrightly, Pascal observed that we've chosen to simply pretend that they're neither real nor true nor relevant. And we could discuss for a good long time, couldn't we, whether... And in what ways that observation is accurate. See, I think if we were to to survey our church family about our haps, what's happening, what has happened and and is happening in our lives. And if on the survey each of us were truly honest about our lives, that survey would reveal that each of our lives are marked by all kinds of challenges, fears, fears. Failures. But we'd also find that in the midst of all of that, many of, if not most of us, are prepared to testify to the reality of joy that comes in our lives, in our circumstances, only from knowing Christ. On that subject, G.K. Chesterton wrote in 1908 that joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Christian joy is rooted in objective truth, not in subjective feelings, anchored in the facts of faith. And that's why Peter's careful in his language. He doesn't say that we feel a certain way, but that we believe a certain thing and in a certain person. And therefore, we are filled with inexpressible joy. In our particular branch of the tree of Christianity, we're not given to the use of catechisms. In fact, you might ask, what in heck is a catechism? A catechism is an instructional method used by some churches and denominations for centuries that employs a a question-and-answer format. And one such catechism is the Heidelberg Catechism, a, a Protestant confessional document that was written in what is now Germany 450-some years ago, 1563. And it was written for use in teaching Reformed Christian doctrine. I'd like to, I'd like you to consider with me this morning its first two questions and and the answers that go with those questions. And the first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And now here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, Now, here's the second question. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. These answers, questions and answers, are really worthy of memorization, are they not? And that's exactly what students of this catechism are required to do as they interact with these great truths. See, in light of these confessions, and and in order to move us now toward application this morning, allow me to share four essential points. The first three begin with a G, the fourth with a J, so three Gs and a J. And the first G is guilt. Guilt isn't a politically correct or socially polite topic, because it makes people feel Guilty, But there can be no awareness of the immensity of God's grace and therefore no gratitude without an understanding of the reality and the greatness of guilt. John Newton was once a slave trader and captain of a slave ship who later in his life believed in Jesus and joined William Wilberforce in the abolitionist movement in England. Newton wrote of his awareness of guilt in a hymn that's familiar to most of us, Amazing Grace. Consider the words he employed in that song as he acknowledged his former condition, words like wretched, lost, and blind. Newton's also famous for this quote from his later years. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, the Bible tells us that sin is, first of all, a condition, the state of our souls apart from Christ. Individual sins like envy and lust and arrogance and racism and so on are, are, are just the symptoms of a larger condition. Bible says that this is a shared condition. Paul wrote in Romans 3 23, All have sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says also that it's a terminal condition. The wages of sin, Paul writes in Romans 6 23, is death. And the Bible says that sin is a miserable condition. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul writes, O wretched man that I am! who will free me from this body controlled by death. So sin is a condition, and whether we feel it or not, it's an objective condition. Part of the the deception involved in being spiritually lost is the lack of awareness that we are in fact lost. So when someone sits and listens to the message of guilt, the tendency is to deny the objective truth and treat it instead as a relative truth. That is, they'll, they'll act as if it may apply to others, but, but not to himself or herself. So our default mode is, is really to anesthetize ourselves against the truth of our own guilt before God. You see, the answer to our sin and guilt is not to try more strenuously to avoid being who and what we really are. Instead, the answer to guilt is the second G, which stands for grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and in the the first four verses of chapter 2, he stated very clearly the problem of our guilt before God. Here's what he wrote. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the bad news. But the good news, the message of God's grace comes in verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So here's the amazing truth. By by God's grace, those who are dead and in need of a resurrection may find it in Jesus. By nature, I am enslaved to sin and in need of liberation, and Christ sets me free. By nature, I'm condemned to death and desperately in need of mercy, and God, who is rich in mercy, gives me life. Without an awareness of our sin and misery, a number of things inevitably follow. So consider with me this scenario. Consider a, a pastor who is embarrassed by the notion, the very notion of sin and guilt and the intended misery of the sinner. He's, he's very concerned to be careful never to offend the conscience of the people in his congregation. Their philosophy is that, well, if there is a God, and he's a good God, then he will reward nice people if they simply do their best. And because I am a relatively nice person, and because I have been doing my best for quite some time, I'm going to rest my confidence and my trust in that. If that pastor ever musters the boldness to say, no, we can't go there because the Bible doesn't allow us to go there, then they will reply, well, that must apply to the person next to me because it certainly doesn't apply to me. And once that conclusion is arrived at and once it kind of settles like concrete in their hearts and and when the consciousness of sin and guilt and condemnation is, is rejected out of hand, There's no longer in their minds any need for a Savior. And in that condition, all that they will ever believe that they may need from Jesus, from Christianity, or even religion in general, is not a Savior, but a supplement. You know what supplements are. Some some of you take supplements all the time. Some of you even take supplements for your supplements. The basic message that that pastor has sent his congregation says, you don't really need this. You don't really need this. We want you to think you do, but you can actually do without it. It's really just a useful supplement to an already good life. Some of you who are listening to this message today have, have allowed yourselves to believe that that is true. Some of you parents are allowing your children, even encouraging them to believe that that is true. But if your understanding of what Christianity is really all about is that Jesus has only come to supplement your already good life, then I would invite you to submit that belief to the scrutiny of the Scriptures and just see if it can stand up under that scrutiny. So much of the teaching that passes as Christianity in so many churches today is nothing more than self-improvement, encouragements to living your best life now, advice for well-meaning people, just just hanging more ornaments on the, the Christmas tree of your existence that has become severed from the source of real life. And that kind of teaching, that kind of gospel, is ultimately empty, deceptive, unproductive, unsustainable. Paul wrote that God demonstrated his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you and I don't need Jesus as a supplement. We desperately need him as our Savior. That's what Christian Getty was trying to get at when she wrote in her hymn, what grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul and from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. You know, the word joy in the New Testament is translated from the Greek word kera, which means the condition of mind and heart that results from the awareness of grace. Joy is grace revealed and grace recognized, grace received. It's the consciousness that, that I have become by faith in Jesus Christ the recipient of God's grace and favor. The only answer to guilt is grace, and the only right response to grace is the third G, which is gratitude, gratitude. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth wrote that grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude, he wrote, like the voice of an echo. Grace, Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning, and as gratitude follows grace, so joy follows gratitude. So I'll say it again. Deep-seated Christian joy isn't a goofy grin or positive thinking or happy self-deception. It isn't ignoring or avoiding the serious problems and fears and failures of life. It's something far more substantial. It's an objective reality in the same way that our sinful condition is an objective reality. And it is on the strength of that objective, that historical work of Christ on the cross, that the one condition can be exchanged for and replaced by the other. And that's why the Bible is so full of joy. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I said I'd give you three G's and a J, and the J, of course, is joy. I recently heard someone ask the question, how many truly joyful people do you know? And it got me thinking. And I'm privileged, I guess, because I'm able to say that I know lots of them. But that led me also to ask another question of myself. Am I one of them? Am I a joyful person? Or am I allowing hindrances to cut me off from the joy of the Lord? There are, of course, hindrances to the experience of joy. Let let me conclude with two of them that each begin with the letter F. The first is foolishness. Foolishness is a hindrance to pure joy. The Apostle Paul in the first chapter of his letter to the church in Rome describes the condition of humanity that is turned away from God, away from everything God created us for, everything God intended us to be. He wrote that as the direct result, we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, he wrote regarding us, They became fools. British author C.S. Lewis weighed in on this when he wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. How about you? Are you in search of joy? Or are you still running down those dead-end streets, trying to find in empty wells the life-giving water that only Christ provides? The second F is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness is a hindrance to joy. In Psalm 103, David had a little talk with himself, with his own heart, and and he wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Have you forgotten? One of the great depletions of joy in the life of the believer is that we we forget. And this is why Christ gave us communion so that we would remember and never forget that when he died, he died in my place, that he took my punishment, he died my death. And that's grace. So my response needs to be gratitude, gratitude. Why spoil your joy by forgetting what God has done for you through Jesus Christ? You and I deplete our joy by forgetting what we should remember and remembering what we should forget. The Satan's strategy to take you down is to drag you through your past, your grief and your loss and your disappointment, your your failure, and, and to get you to dwell on failures that God has forgiven, but but you have not forgotten. The world tells us to look inside ourselves for all that we need. The gospel calls us to look out from ourselves to Christ and his accomplishment for us at the cross. Satan flees from the truth of the gospel. He runs away when, when you and I embrace the truth that's found in Jesus. And there's a third F, and the third F is Faith, your need and mine, is for faith. We're not saved by joy; we are saved by grace through faith, and and our faith is founded on what God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ at the cross. I, I heard recently about a Scottish pastor named Ebenezer Erskine. Sounds like a character from a Dickens novel. <clears throat> He might have been, actually. He died in 1754 after suffering for several years with a painful physical disorder. During his illness, one of the elders of his church called on him, and in the course of their conversation, the elder asked, Sir, you have given us so much good counsel. Pray tell me, what are you now doing with your soul? I am doing with it, Erskine replied. What I did 40 years ago. I'm resting upon that word. I am the Lord thy God. And on this I mean to die. A short time later as he drew. Even closer to death. uh, Another friend visited and said to him. Sir I, I hope you get now and then. A glimpse of heaven to bear up your spirits under affliction. And Erskine responded. I know more of words than of glimpses. What was he saying? I think he was saying this, that that he would rather trust the objective promises of God than subjective glimpses of heaven. We should look first to the cross and and fix our gaze on Christ who suffered and died there in our place so that we could receive his grace and give him our gratitude and receive again from him his gift of inexpressible joy. And then we can sing that old hymn that says, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, Satan doesn't know what to do with truly joyful Christians who, who know that they know that they know that through Christ they have become the recipients of his saving grace. Stories told of the reformer Martin Luther who on an occasion when he received some very bad news said to those who delivered it, come, let us sing a psalm and spite the devil. May you know the joy of the Lord in your life now and forever as you trust in Christ, not as your supplement, but as your Savior. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the joy that is the the gigantic secret of the Christian because we know we have a Savior who bore our sins in his body, who died our death, who defeated the power of sin and death for us and gives to those who trust in him the gift of everlasting life. Lord, may we look to you today as our Savior and our soon-coming King and may that truth fill us with inexpressible joy we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, have a great week. God bless you.